Just like that. One moment you're here, the next you're dead. And a victim's only hope is that somehow their death is known, solved, without any questions lingering behind for their friends and loved ones, and for the one who may be responsible for their death, to pay. Chills from Top 15s joins me for this episode of Twisted Tens, where we discuss 10 horrifying unsolved deaths. What you're about to see may disturb you. The name itself inspires some rather gruesome thoughts. The Cleveland Torso Murderer got their name for the victims they killed and dismembered in the 1930s in Cleveland, Ohio. The exact number of victims isn't known, but it is said to be between 12 and 20. The Cleveland Torso Murderer had a rather specific type of target, and they did well at preventing themselves from getting too much unwanted attention. Most of their victims were drifters who went unidentified even to this day. As drifters often had no personal connections to anyone else, they could easily be killed without any family or friends identifying them. This, coupled with the fact that their victims also came from lower class society, made the investigation even less likely to be fruitful. The torso murderer shrouded their actions in mystery with their grisly calling card of dismemberment. They would remove the limbs and head of their victims and would also at times cut the torsos in half and castrate their male prey. While many killers who dismember bodies do it after their victim dies, it was shown that the torso murderer had other tastes. The one they chose to kill would die from the dismemberment itself, usually from a bloody and vicious beheading. All their victims died while filled with the worst type of fear and agony. Though some suspects were questioned, no indisputable evidence was ever found, and the Cleveland Torso murderer lived out the rest of their days unidentified, much like so many of his victims. This here is a modern-day Tylenol pill, but they didn't always look like this. At one point, they were made with capsules, much like this one, easily pulled apart and tampered with. And in Chicago in 1982, this very fact caused a lot of panic and a lot of death because someone out there had utilized this exploit to lace Tylenol capsules with potassium cyanide, a lethal poison, and allowed people to purchase and ingest them. Seven people fell victim to the sinister tampering. The first victim was a 12-year-old girl named Mary Kellerman. That same day, another person died of the same poisoning. It wasn't even a week before investigators discovered the link, and Johnson & Johnson, Tylenol's manufacturer, sent out grave warnings to halt production and advertising of the famous over-the-counter medicine. This was followed up promptly by a nationwide recall of Tylenol products, which ended up being around 31 million bottles, valued at over $100 million. Though three people were considered suspects, all three were ruled out. One man even admitted to the poisonings and attempted to extort the government into paying him to end the killings. When police discovered the man was a con artist with no connection to the murders, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison, for which he spent 13, and he has, for years, denied having any actual involvement in the murders. 
The tragedy ultimately pushed manufacturers to produce tamper-resistant packaging such as plastic seals and to move away from capsules into the pills we all know today, unable to be opened and filled with anything we don't want in there. Johnson & Johnson was praised by the media for how they handled the crisis, but the one who caused it all is still unknown to this day. Before Richard Ramirez became infamously known as the Night Stalker, there was another man who held that title and to this day is still known as the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist. Like Ramirez, this unidentified serial killer and rapist operated in California, both in the northern and southern parts of the state. Through 1979 to 1986, the East Area Rapist killed at least 12 people and raped over 50. Such large numbers make it hard to believe that police could never solve this case, but the case baffled them. It was originally believed that the East Area Rapist was two different people, a person raping women in the north and a man murdering people in the south, but due to DNA testing and a very distinctive modus operandi, police came to the strong belief that they were dealing with one man. The East Area Rapist is believed to have originally been a burglar, who eventually evolved into a serial rapist. He would break into homes at night, wake the occupants, who were oftentimes a man and a woman, and threaten them with a handgun. From there, he would force the woman to tie up the man, and then tie up the woman himself. He would stack dishes on top of the man's back and go about his business for sometimes hours, ransacking the house, eating food and stealing property. He would tell the man that if he heard the dishes rattle for any reason, he would kill everyone in the house. At times, the victims would be unaware if their attacker was even still inside the house or not while they were bound, helpless on the floor. Eventually, the East Area Rapist would evolve yet again to murder, binding, raping, and bludgeoning or shooting his victims to death. As of June of 2016, police have announced a nationwide push to capture the original Night Stalker, with a $50,000 reward to whoever can lead to his arrest. There was once a time in many societies where parents didn't feel the constant need to supervise their children. Kids would be free to run off down the street and play with friends far out of the sight of their guardians. But in Australian society, this mindset was shifted to a more healthily paranoid one, partly due to the mysterious case of the Beaumont children. The Beaumont children were three siblings, two girls and a boy. Jane, who was nine years old, Arna, who was seven, and Grant, who was four. The children lived with their parents in Somerton Park, a suburb of Adelaide. The children could often be found visiting a beachside resort that was conveniently located very close by. The children could have been considered very lucky to live in such close proximity to a paradise like that, able to spend their free time there having fun, and in those days, their parents didn't mind letting them hop on a bus and take a short five-minute drive to the resort. The children left at 10 a.m. on January 26, 1966. They were told to be back by 2 p.m., and when 2 p.m. came around, the children were nowhere to be found, and the parents began to grow concerned. Soon, 3 p.m. came, then 4. More and more worry overcame the parents as they tried to rationalize why their children were so late. But when the clock read 7.30 p.m., their parents had waited long enough and phoned the police, and an investigation that would rock the entire nation began. 
It was discovered that the last known sighting of the Beaumont children was by a postman who knew the children well, so his statement was treated as entirely reliable. He said that he witnessed the children having a good time as they walked down the main street, heading in the direction of their home. But they weren't alone. Several witnesses claimed to see the children with a tall blonde man believed to be in his mid-thirties. Because Jane, the oldest, was incredibly shy of anyone she didn't know, her parents found it odd that she would be seen having a good time and laughing with a stranger. But then something clicked. A remark Arna had made some time before. She told her mother that Jane had got a boyfriend down at the beach. Their mother believed this was simply another young child, but it's now believed that this tall blonde man had possibly met the children a number of times when they visited the resort and they began to trust him to the point where he could lure them away. The Beaumont children remain missing to this day, their fates unknown, but many tips have been sent in over the years since their disappearance. The most recent tip perhaps is the most promising yet, reigniting the case as recently as January of 2016. Police believe this could end up as just another one of the many dead ends in the case, however, especially considering their current suspect has been dead for some time. Though investigators continue their efforts to crack the case, it's unknown if it'll ever be solved. It was October 28, 1991. 911 dispatchers received a call from a payphone in Wheeling, Illinois from a man who spoke quickly and in a panicked tone. He told the dispatcher to send an ambulance to 1765 Stonehenge Court in Wheeling. He specified that the ambulance should be sent immediately. He went on to say that there was a woman in there who wasn't breathing and that she was turning blue. The operator tried to get the number the man was calling from, to which he replied, It's a public phone, and then hung up never to be heard from again. When police arrived at the address specified by the unknown caller, they discovered it was the apartment of 27-year-old exotic dancer Jamie Santos, who was inside on her bedroom floor dressed in a large tie-dye shirt and underwear. She was just about dead and was rushed to the hospital, but it was too late. Jamie Santos died from suffocation. Something had been placed over her nose and mouth to prevent her breathing, but the apartment was neat and well-organized, no sign of a struggle. Jamie Santos hadn't even been sexually assaulted. There were no drugs in her system. Jamie was known to be in shape as well and had a bit of a temper. She would have no qualms about fighting off an attacker, but there were no signs of her resisting. To this day, police only have the 911 recording to go off of, made from a payphone that was removed years ago. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories. A paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9pm Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. The case of Angie Hausman is one that haunts those involved to this day over two decades later. A girl only in the fourth grade, innocent and trusting, was found dead. The work of a predator. But the death was anything but quick, anything but painless. 
and the way she died proved to countless people that some people are monstrous and should never be trusted. Angie Hausman was only nine years old when she was on her way home from school in Missouri on November 18, 1993. It had been especially cold out as winter prepared to grip Angie's city of St. Louis, and in the cold air, Angie vanished. By the time that the first day had passed, family already knew something was terribly wrong, but they wouldn't see their daughter again for nine days. But two days before Angie was discovered, a young boy known in the media only as David, also from the area, had attended a Thanksgiving get-together at a neighbor's home. It's here, in the midst of a football game and commercials, that Angie's picture flashed on the screen as the news made another attempt to get any sort of information on her whereabouts. David saw this, and after the news anchor's plea for information, he started to make the others at the party feel a little weird. When he claimed that he knew where they'd find Angie, he told them that he had a dream that told him where she was and that they would find her in the bush wildlife area tied to a tree. None of the adults at the home seemed to be alarmed enough to phone police, but they absolutely should have. It was two days later when a hunter was stalking through a wooded area, the bush wildlife area, looking to hunt deer when he noticed an odd looking tree, something peculiar about it. As he approached, he was horrified when he came to the realization that it was the body of nine-year-old Angie tied to the tree, just as David had said. She was covered in small pieces of ice. Angie had been tied to the tree and left to freeze to death, which she unfortunately had. But it was revealed that Angie had only just died a few hours before being discovered. Nine days missing, and she was discovered just hours too late. With devastated loved ones, police investigated every angle, questioning David as well, not believing his dream claims as much as they believed someone told him something. But David never budged from his claims that he had had a dream, his mother even claiming that their family had a history of predicting events through their dreams. Investigators determined that Angie had been starved, raped, and tortured before her death, and was held at an unknown location for around a week before she was left to die out in the cold with duct tape wrapped around her mouth and eyes and handcuffs on her wrists. There have been plenty of leads throughout the years, confessions and all, but nothing has checked out to solve this horrific murder, though investigators, now much older, continue to search for anything that could bring justice to the death of Angie Hausman. One of the most bizarre crimes ever committed was that of the murder of Blair Adams. Blair was a 31-year-old man from Canada who, according to friends and relatives, began acting very bizarre only days before his demise. He had become paranoid, claiming that people were trying to kill him. When friends wanted to help Blair and asked for more information, he claimed that he didn't think he should talk about it and never told anyone exactly why he felt his life was in danger. On July 5th, 1996, Blair withdrew all of his money out of his savings account, grabbed thousands of dollars worth of his jewelry, gold, and other precious items and drove to the Canadian-American border. 
due to the amount of money he had on him. He made the border patrol suspicious and they denied him access to the United States. Because of the amount of money he had on him and the fact he was a single man, he fit the profile of someone attempting to traffic drugs. Blair turned around and went home, but the next day arrived at work, requested payment and quit his job, and then purchased a round trip ticket to Germany but he would never go to Germany. A short time later, he turned in his tickets, rented a car, and attempted to cross the border again, this time succeeding in heading into Seattle, Washington. From there, he purchased a round-trip ticket to Washington, D.C. and flew there, only to rent another car and drive to Knoxville, Tennessee. This puzzled investigators, as it made no sense for him to fly past Tennessee just to drive back to it. There was also nothing to indicate that Blair knew anyone in either of these areas. While in Knoxville, Blair stopped at a gas station and then complained to the attendant that his car wouldn't start. The attendant determined that he had the wrong keys and that he wouldn't be able to start the car. It's unknown how Blair drove there to begin with. The attendant noted how paranoid Blair was. Even though he was the only one in the gas station, he kept looking around as if someone was going to jump out at any moment. Blair was able to find a ride to a nearby hotel where he continuously entered and exited the lobby for about an hour before finally purchasing a room. Once he received his key at around 7.37pm that night, Blair walked out of the lobby and outside one final time. That was the last time he was seen alive. 12 hours later, Blair's body was found, naked from the waist down and his shirt was ripped open. Investigators determined that his pants had been taken off of him and that he didn't do it himself. His body was covered in cuts and abrasions, as if he had been fending off an attack. Eventually, Blair sustained a violent blow to his stomach, causing it to rupture and he died as a result. Perhaps most strange of all was that $4,000 worth of American, Canadian, and German currency as well as his jewelry and gold were scattered around his body at the scene. To this day, this case dumbfounds investigators who have no idea who Blair was running from or to. A young girl having innocent fun in the playground right behind her home. Her mother inside preparing lunch while she ran around with the other children. Rachel Runyon was only three years old and no adults were present to watch her or the others on August 26, 1982. Well, there was one adult, but it wasn't the kind that anyone would want overseeing their children. The other children at the playground that day remembered a large black man, probably around 30 years old, who enticed Rachel with chewing gum and led her away from the fun and games into his car, described as blue with wooden paneling on the sides by the children who were present. Her mother, devastated, desperately hoped that she would be able to have her daughter found and returned to her safely, but that was sadly not the case. Rachel was found 24 days later, naked and hogtied in a river, and almost entirely unrecognizable. Her parents had to undergo the traumatizing experience of confirming that it was their daughter by identifying the unique condition of her teeth. The body was in such poor condition that it wasn't possible at the time to even determine the cause of death or gather any evidence that may have led to the suspect being identified. But things seemed to only grow darker surrounding the murder. There was speculation that Rachel had been killed in part of a satanic ritual. More speculation indicated that Rachel's murder had been filmed as part of a snuff film. There have also been accounts of black roses being left on Rachel's grave. Police eventually encountered a message written in a bathroom stall just a few miles from where Rachel was abducted. It read, Beware, I'm still at large. 
I killed the little Runyon girl. Remember, beware. Beneath it, an inverted cross with the number 666. Though haunting, many people chalk this up to a satanic panic that was sweeping over the nation at the time of Rachel's murder. Police have had hundreds of suspects come across their path since the murder, some more promising than others, but none connected enough to charge with Rachel's murder. Rachel's mother has since become an advocate for endangered children and continues to help keep other families from having to endure the loss that she has. Twenty-year-old Arnold Archambault and nineteen-year-old Ruby Brugier were driving with Ruby's younger cousin, seventeen-year-old Tracy, one winter night in South Dakota in 1992. Unfortunately, the three made the mistake of drinking that night to the point of being drunk, and Arnold, while inebriated, was behind the wheel. Arnold jerked the wheel for an unknown reason and drove the car directly into a frozen ditch, flipping the car onto its roof. Tracy's memory from that night is unclear, but she recalled that when she gained consciousness, that Arnold was nowhere to be found and Ruby was attempting to get out of the car. Eventually, Ruby was able to free herself from the wrecked vehicle, leaving Tracy behind. Not saying a word to her, Ruby left the car behind and vanished. Luckily, paramedics arrived a short time later and were able to rescue Tracy from the vehicle, but Arnold and Ruby were both still missing. Months later, Arnold and Ruby were found. They were in the frozen ditch that they crashed into, both dead. One factor that threw off investigators was the fact that Ruby didn't have her glasses or shoes on and neither could be found, but all of her other clothing was intact. Perhaps most perplexing of all was that both bodies were in considerably different stages of decomposition, as if one body had been dead much longer than the other. Arnold's body, submerged in the frozen water, was in much better shape than Ruby's body, found in the same water. Not everyone believed that Arnold and Ruby were the victims of a drunken car accident. One person claimed to have witnessed Arnold on New Year's Eve, nearly three weeks after the accident. Whether foul play or the victims of an icy drowning, the exact circumstances of their deaths continue to perplex investigators. On June 9, 1912, families gathered at the local Presbyterian Church in the small town of Villisca, Iowa, for a special service marking the end of Sunday school for the year. The Moors, a dedicated, well-respected Christian family in the community, were all in attendance, including parents Josiah and Sarah, as well as their four children, sons Herman, Paul, and Boyd, and their eldest child, Mary Catherine. But when the festivities ended, the Moore children weren't ready to let the day end, and begged their parents to let neighbors Lena and Ina Stillinger spend the night. Seeing no harm in it, Josiah and Sarah agreed and they walked back to their home with the six children, serving them cookies before tucking them into bed that night. However, no one could know that it would be their last meal or that the dawn would bring about horrific bloodshed. An unknown assailant had broken into the house and hid in the attic, smoking and waiting patiently for the family's return. After everyone had fallen asleep, the intruder barged into the adult's room and hacked Josiah with an axe until he was unrecognizable, before beating Sarah and all six of the sleeping children with the blunt end, until the house fell silent again. 
But it wasn't just the gruesome discovery of the bodies the next morning that unnerved the police. The murder weapon was left behind in a bedroom next to a four-pound cut of slab bacon, and an unfinished meal sat next to a bowl of bloodied water on the dining table. The killer had also, before leaving, taken the time to rifle through the family's clothing and use various pieces to cover all of the mirrors in the house. As thousands gathered for the funeral procession, local police were still trying to track down the Moors and the Stillinger sisters' killer. But after crossing off name after name on a long list of suspects, everyone from a state senator to a traveling reverend, they still had no solid leads, and the case turned cold. To this day, the why and the who behind the Velisca Axe murders remain unsolved. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.